We're going to read from the Bible together. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 20, first of all, and then also from Acts chapter 17. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 20 and the first six verses down to the end of the second commandment. That's on page 77 of the Red Bibles in the pew. And then we're going to read from Acts chapter 17 from verse 22 to verse 31. So that's on page 1113 on the Red Bibles in the pews. You might want to flick to that and have your finger in Acts chapter 17. But first of all, we'll read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. And as we read, we remember this is the word of God, and so we can trust it completely. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then over to Acts chapter 17. Beginning to read at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Please do open your Bible with me to the book of Exodus and the chapter 20. 
And as we think about the commandments, we're, we're working through them and, and thinking about 10 words of life, okay? So 10 words of life, and here we're in the second word of life this morning. And what is the second commandment? What's the title for this morning? It's simply this, worshiping God how he wants. Worshiping God how he wants. And as we think through this this morning, we're going to have lots of things buzzing around in our heads. We're going to have idols. We're going to have worship. We're going to have us, and we're going to have God. And we're trying to think, how do all of these fit together here this morning? So, if you could make your own God, I wonder what he would look like. If you had your own God, you could design your own God, you could sculpt them, you could write out the characteristics of your own God, what would they look like? What would a God designed by John Graham look like? What would a God designed by you look like? And I don't think we'd have to look too hard to figure this out, because in our own society, we're experts at building and designing false gods. We do it all the time, and Pete helped us last week think a little bit about that. Well, where do we build them? Well, we build them in our own lives. We start to put structures in place, and and we build up little temples in and under our feet, and then we build a throne, and we place ourselves on that throne. Where do we build false gods, false idols? We build them under us and around us so that we can sit on the throne and that we can rule. And we can see it in society, can't we? A society full of self-constructed gods results in this, that each person thinks they can do as they please. It makes perfect sense to the modern mind. One, that I should be God of my life. And two, that if I am God of my own life, then I can determine everything about me. I can decide what I do with my body. I can decide how I identify in my sexuality. I can decide who I love I can decide what truth is. I can decide to be totally intolerant of your worldview because I am my own God. And in my kingdom, I live by my rules. So what would your self-constructed God look like? What would your God be like? For many of us, it would just look like us. It would be frighteningly similar to us. And whenever it comes to the church, right, that's in the world. Whenever it comes to the church, we we tone it back a little bit. Why? Well, because we heard about ruling and, and, and worshiping God and God alone last week. So what we do is that we know that we can't worship ourselves. We know that we have to worship our triune God, but we start to warp how we worship God. And it's exactly at this point where we start to rub up against the second commandment. The first commandment is against worshiping God and worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. So we're thinking this morning, how can we worship God the way he wants us to worship him? So Exodus chapter 20 and into verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then you'll note that further on in this, that it starts to, starts to mention here in, in the passage, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're not going to focus on this, but I just want to point it out right here that what's going on here is not that, that people are punished for their, the sin of those in the generations above, but rather what God is trying to point out to us is that often whenever a father rebels, the consequences are similar for the son or for the daughter. As one person in the family rebels, they often lead others in rebellion. But then for those who love God, verse 6, there will be great love for generations. And we as a covenant believing church believe that we pass the faith on from generation to generation. So we wanted to clear that up, that this is not a curse, it's not a a hex or anything going on there, but it's simply the acknowledgement that if a father rebels, it is likely that his son will rebel also. So the second commandment, the word of life, the second word of life, worshiping God the way that he wants to be worshiped. I'm going to rely on the Westminster Shorter Catechism because we're Presbyterians and we love the Westminster Shorter Catechism, okay? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 52 says this, the reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety, his ownership of us, and his zeal that he has for his own worship. So that's what the second commandment is all about, that we worship God in spirit and in truth, that we worship him with our entire beings. Romans 12, we are a living sacrifice. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we start to put and work our way through this second commandment, we have to see this, that the call for us as a church here this morning is to be all in for Jesus, to worship him and to worship him alone, that we are enthusiastic about worshiping him, about honoring him, that we love him week upon week upon week a little bit more than what we did the week before, that we grow as his disciples. Why? Because if we're Christians here in this place, then the gospel transforms us. It changes us. It has to. It must change us. If it's authentic, if it is the word of life, it must transform us and it must transform our worship. Because here's the key to worship. All of us are hardwired to worship something. All of us. Each and every one of us here worship something. The question this morning for us as Christians is, is it God? Is it Jesus? Do we worship him? Or do we worship other things? And often to our shame, what happens whenever we arrive at the second commandment is we brush it off. That's for people in Indonesia. That's for people in India. That's for people in the Amazon who worship little pieces of wood, little pieces of metal. That's for them. This doesn't really apply to us. It's kind of the same as the first one. And we gloss over it. Well, let's do a diagnosis question on ourselves here this morning. I want you to fill in the blanks. This will reveal what idol hides in your heart, what idol you worship before Jesus. So fill in these blanks. Blank gives purpose and meaning and fulfillment to my life. Blank governs the way that I act. Blank 
is the focal point around which my whole existence hangs. Blank is my thoughts that I get super enthusiastic about. Thoughts of blank comfort me when I'm down. I read about blank, I talk about blank, and make my friends more interested about this thing. I desire more of blank. And whatever word that we can put into that place, that we can fill in the blanks as we run that diagnosis question through us and and as we run it through our minds and our hearts, what is it flagging up? And the first thing that comes to your mind, that first thing, that first word, that's it. That's the idol in your heart this morning. So this builds upon what Pete told us last week. One, we have no other gods before our God. And then we worship him the way that he wants to be worshipped. So God is the exact opposite of everything that an idol is. So whatever it is, whatever word we fill in the blank with, bodies, banks, bars, beds, children, cars, clothes, clubs, country, celebrities, technology, titles, whatever it is, whatever your blank is, the key, the key is we worship these things because they give us a purpose. They add a sense of meaning to our life, make us feel important. They give us a sense of legitimacy, that we're living for something. And they put a demand on our life, but not too high of a demand, just a nice amount. A demand that is controllable. You see, an idol will not require you to end an affair. An idol will not challenge you about your fundamental identity. An idol is moldable to your life. It can be manipulated. And an idol does this. Key, it provides you with intimate access to something that you think is beyond your control. And it's on your terms. You get this intimate access on your terms. So if an idol is a a bottle or whatever it is, whatever figure it may represent, that you can have access to it on your terms, whenever you want it and however you want to have it. And for this exact reason, God says, you cannot make images. You cannot have any images that represent or that you think that you can worship because it will lead you away from me. What about the golden calf? The golden calf, what happens? People have a desire. They want to be close to God. They want to have intimacy with God. They want to worship him there and then. So they make this calf. They think it'll help them. It'll lead them in worship. But it doesn't. You see, whenever people see the calf, they start to imagine God in that form. So the characteristics of the calf are characteristics that we start to impose upon God. It starts to change our view of God. The Ark of the Covenant, what about it? Well, it became a lucky charm. It was wheeled out whenever the people wanted favor and then put away again whenever they wanted to be disobedient. And God says, no to images. Your hearts are evil. No image, no image will help you focus your worship on me. You'll start to think of my character in that way, and I'm revealed through words. Not through pictures, says God. People come to know me by words. So this commandment reveals something of God's character. Who is God? God is free. He is not containable. 
We're going back to the Westminster Confession. This time we're going to the larger, the larger confession, number seven, says, what is God? And it'll come up on the screen for us. This is who we serve. This is the God that says, you cannot make me into an image of wood or metal or clay. You cannot, you cannot mold me. It is this God, a God that says, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. We cannot reduce this God to an image. We cannot manipulate this God. We cannot decide to have God on our terms. We cannot make the invisible God visible. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, that reading that we had a little bit earlier says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then verse seven, chapter 17, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, art and imagination of man. Friends, this morning, our imaginations can't even begin to fathom what our God is like. And if we reduce God to a lump of wood or a lump of clay or to some construct in our mind, he becomes controllable. We are able to put him at a distance and keep him literally in a box. He becomes containable. He brings low-level satisfaction. And we can have intimate access on our terms. And these are all markers of dead religion. Know this. God cannot be controlled by us. He is the God of the wondrous and the miraculous. He is the God who flung the stars into space. And yet we try to mold them. God cannot be contained. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. God cannot bring low-level satisfaction. He transforms and demands everything from us. He is our satisfaction. And he brings a deeper, truer intimacy than any idol can ever offer through his word, by his spirit. The commentator says this. If we want to replace God, he says this. To fill God's place with an image is like blotting out the sun and substituting it with a 45-watt bulb. If we want to replace our God with an image, it's replacing the sun with a 45-watt bulb. We learn that God is not containable, that he is free, and we also learn that God is a jealous God. Here in our passage in Exodus, we see it here. God says, I am jealous. Now, what is going on with that? Anytime it's used, we often think of it in a, in a negative way, but here it's meant in a passionate way, in a loyal way, in a zealous way. And the biblical context for it is marriage. God is using this. He's deploying it in, in, a, in a framework of marriage. He's trying to say to Israel, look, I am jealous for you. I love you. I want you to worship me and to me alone. I want you to make a distinction between me and all these other images of gods that surround us in Egypt and in, and in the Holy Land. So imagine it like this. 
Imagine a husband and a wife. And imagine that one day the wife finds in the husband's wallet a picture of another woman. And she asks, who's, who's that woman? Oh, that's, that's just a friend. That's just someone that I go to the odd time whenever I need comforted. Whenever I want to escape a little, whenever I just need to get my head shorted, I go to this person and actually I've been confiding in them. I've been finding pleasure in them. I've been finding comfort in them. It would be crazy for the wife to turn around and say, that's totally fine. Don't worry about it. She would be jealous for her husband. She would be jealous for the exclusivity of that relationship. And our God is a jealous God for exclusivity. That he is our God and him alone. And it is him that we worship and nothing else. So he is passionate for us. He's zealous about our love. He wants our attention and he wants our worship. He wants us to be fully committed and devoted to him. Why? Exodus 2.20. He has brought us out of slavery, out of death and into life. And similarly in Acts 17.25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this God this amazing God who we get to worship, we cannot worship him in the way that we desire. We can't do it. Because if we try to do it that way, we'll mess it up. We'll make an image. We'll worship a calf or an item or something else. We'll, we'll, we'll get it wrong. We'll mess it up. So God gives freedom and he says, look, I'm gonna tell you how you should worship me. It's called the regulative principle. It's something that as Presbyterians we hold to. It's why our order of service looks the way it looks, why we do things in that order, because God has laid out for us in his word how we should worship him. What should we do? Whenever we gather for public worship, we should read God's word. We should preach God's word. We should sing God's word. We should pray God's word. And then we have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that is what God has given us, to worship him. That's how we should worship. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 96, tells us that we worship him in no other way apart from the way his word has commanded us to. So it gives us great freedom here this morning. Whenever we turn up on a Sunday, we don't have to guess how are we gonna worship him here today. We don't have to bend to cultural captivity. We don't have to think of new weekly novelties, man-made ideas. We don't have to sit down, Nigel and Pete and myself, every week and try and think of something new and something creative. We don't have to spend X amount of money trying to change the inside of the building every week. No. God has told us how we should worship him. So then worship changes for us. That that sense that we need a purpose, that we need a meaning to our life, to feel important, to give us legitimacy, to give us something to live for, to give us intimate access, God says, is all fulfilled in my son Jesus. That's where our worship has to go. So from Exodus 2, or Exodus 20 and verse 4, in the second commandment, God's pointing forward to something that's going to come. Don't worship images. Something greater is going to come. My son is going to come. And we worship him 
the perfect man. The one who bears my image, says the Father. His son, the center of our worship. So Jesus transforms our worship. He transforms our purpose. He transforms the meaning of our life. He transforms our legitimacy and our requirements. Jesus transforms everything about us. And what does he do? He gives us intimate access to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus is. That's the one that we come to worship. The one who tears the the, the temple curtain, who gives us access to our Father. So as we gather week after week, we set idols aside. We do not worship them because there is no power in them. They are empty. We do not think up images of God in wood or metal because they will lead us away from the true and living God. But we come and we worship Jesus, the one who saved us, the one who was sent by the Father to come and to rescue us. So this is the second word of life, that we come and we worship the rescuer, that we worship him in spirit and in truth, that we worship him with all of our lives. And there's a warning here as we close. God will not share our worship with idols. If we start to worship idols here in this place, then God's presence will leave us. What does an image, what what does an idol look like for us? Well, we have to be careful that we don't make an idol out of the music group, out of the organ, out of our buildings, out of our style of preaching, out of the version of the Bible that we read of. That we don't start to take pride in who we are but rather we come and everyone who gathers here knows that we come and we worship our God. We often sing these words at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Heal the incarnate deity, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's the one that our worship has to surround on. That's the one that we want to focus on as we leave here today, that it's all about him the one who grants us access to our Father, the one who gives us intimacy to our King and our Lord.